You might ask, well, what, uh, who is this man and why, why should I listen to him? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Um, when, I, when I grow up, I want to be like Ben and Daniel, so I'm not even sure who I am. I'll tell you this, you don't have a reason to listen to me. I have no right to stand here. But because of what God has done, and because of what I believe about scriptures, I am, I am I'm really excited to share with you what I understand uh, scriptures to be. I, uh, I'm just excited to, to, to share with you what God has taught me over, over these years. I, uh, I was a carpenter until I was 45 years old. That was just last year. <laughs> I... Uh, but I've always had a desire to help people all my life. Even before I was a believer, I had a passion to help people. But uh, over a period of time, in, uh, in our, I came to Christ at, at the age of 21 and, and through the age of 21 to about, uh, actually to about 40. Life was very, very hard for us. And God really, really stressed us. And over that period of time, I just, uh, uh, well, deep, deep, dark depression for several years and just uh, found myself really, really questioning if God exists. I was convinced that God didn't care. I was convinced at one time in my life that I was just a pawn on a chessboard. He was just messing. I was a believer, married with three kids. And so, my life changed radically because of a lot of things converging at the same time. But one night, uh, one evening in particular, you know, I was at our kitchen table and uh, another couple of them loved dearly at our house. And they did for me what I am going to plead with you to learn how to do for others. They spoke the truth and love. The shades came off of my heart. And I remember waiting. And my forehead hit the table. And I realizing that for years I was shaking my fist at God. I didn't like the way he ran his kingdom. Jesus said about uh, John the Baptist, blessed is he whose delivered shall not be offended in the way of Since then, God has blessed me beyond measure. And uh, I began to wake up to the realization that our culture does not have answers to the problems that our souls yearn for. And I had exhausted all of my own energies, and I had exhausted all of my efforts to try and find answers again in the church. Popular Christian answers weren't working. I understood something was wrong with those answers, but I just didn't understand what it was. And uh, praise the Lord, someone asked me one day if I believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. And I said, yes. But I had no idea. I had no idea what that word meant. It just sounded like, of course, sufficiency went to Scripture. But I did not know what that meant. And I hope to talk a little bit about that today because as I began to understand that, I began to understand something very, very powerful about the Word of God and the Gospel. And, and I began to understand that I had a phenomenal opportunity to wade into other people's messes like my life and to share with them what God has shown me and done in my heart for the glory of God and the good of other people. And I have been uh, doing this ever since 1999. So I'm 45 damn deep math, I can. Uh, 17 years, 16 years, something like that. So I'm really excited about that because I began to recognize that the advice I was giving people uh, was extremely unbiblical. And uh, Pastor Joel Smith is going to speak tomorrow. His dad was one of my mentors, and I was up to that fact that I was 
not thinking biblically. I didn't understand the sufficiency of scripture, and I didn't know how to use the scripture biblically. Uh, he woke me up with a question. I asked him one time. I had, I had to go in, in front of a meeting of, of significant leaders. Called Bob on the phone, and I said, "How? How can I present these biblical truths to these fifty-some leaders without losing credibility?" Now think about think about that. How would you answer that question? I hope you learn uh, how to do this and how to do this well as we start tonight. He asked me a question back. He didn't answer my question. He asked me a question. He said, what makes you think, uh, what makes the goal of your credibility so important? Or another, I think he actually said, what makes uh, the goal of the conversation your credibility? And I knew I didn't have. It's not about credibility. It's about the word of God. It's about people choosing love, right? Turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, and I, I want to set the context as we talk about the subject tonight, the need of biblical counseling. I began to wake up at that moment and recognize that something was radically, something radically needed to change in my, my worldview. Here I was, 45 years old, a Christian for 24 years, and I did not know how to think biblically. I didn't even realize I didn't think biblically. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to offer the context for biblical counseling and discipleship. It's the local church. I did not know that. I didn't know that. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, uh, Paul had just made much of, of uh, Christ's love. We have just sung three phenomenal songs on the love of Christ. By the way, I don't have a clicker, so somebody uh, advances the slide. Can you see me do that? I, I failed to think ahead, which is a rare thing for me, for those of you in my Sunday school class. You know that's not my usual. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul had just made much of Christ in three chapters. Chapter 4, he says this, Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another's love. Eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, and there is one body. My passion here tonight and tomorrow is to stir in your hearts a desire for the body of Christ to come together, speaking the truth in love for the unity of the body, for the good of the other person, and for the strength of the local church. If you look at uh, what Ephesians has to say uh, throughout the rest of this chapter of this book, it's just phenomenal calling. The body of Christ to build itself up. I'm going to skip over this. We don't have near enough time to go through it, but I want you to move on down to uh, verse 40. There's one body, one spirit. Skip on down to verse 11. He gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. What for? What are your pastors and elders and teachers for? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Thank you, Mike. The goal of the church is to build up itself. How do you do that? So that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by, by waves, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness, by deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. And my my passion is that we become a church that learns to speak the truth in love, to build up the body of Christ, serving the body. Let's bow our word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you called us because of your great love. You have called us and chose us and brought us into relationship with you because of Christ. 
And we pray, Lord, that uh, tonight you would be stirred in our hearts to love you more deeply, to love one another more purely, and to, uh, to really look at how you've called us to be disciples, to grow in our understanding, to be, to be learners, so that we can turn into the world and become more like you. We ask for your blessing to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want to challenge us with first, just in the context of biblical counseling and discipleship. This is what I believe the church ought to be pursuing all of the time, uh, everywhere, every day, and everyone. I say this in Sunday school often. You've heard it, those of you in my class. The great commandment love God and love people. Our, our purpose here in life is to love God and love people. Church. And Paul made much of love, the love of God in chapters 1, 2, and, and 3. Now, I think it's four times in chapter 4, he talks about love, loving each other, applied love, loving God, loving people. And then he goes on and he says that you should build one another up, basically make disciples. Jesus' last statement to the church was what? It wasn't go. It wasn't baptize. It wasn't teach. It was make disciples. Go make disciples. And I've said this now for, for months in our, our Sunday school class. We need to be growing in our love for God, love for people, and consciously developing ourselves as disciples. Because when a disciple is fully trained, who's he like? Tell me. Christ. He's like Christ. A disciple becomes a disciple maker. And it was years, years in my life that I, I just did not recognize the fact that God had saved me, put me in the body to be a disciple maker. Never occurred to me. Chapter 4 of Ephesians also tells us to be using the spiritual gifts of the church. In this context, the spiritual gift of the church is the teacher. But in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, it talks about every believer has a spiritual gift. Every single one of us has a spiritual gift. What it is, not sure. Uh, somebody told me one time that I heard a speaker talk about spiritual gifts one time. So be careful what you do with what I'm saying here. Uh, you talk about spiritual gifts, and I, I wrote him a, uh, I think back then it was probably a letter. Uh, about spiritual gifts. He said he had a test where you could decide to discern what your spiritual gift was. And he sent me this test, and I, I, I looked at it, and I started to fill it out, and I started to recognize, wait a minute. The, my neighbor, who was uh, uh, consistent, he would, he would stop by to talk to me about the gospel. He was always drunk, always intoxicated. If I gave the test to my neighbor, he would have a spiritual gift. And I thought, that's just not a good answer to the question. My point here, though, is this. According to the scriptures, if you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ for your sin and if you're trusting him for your righteousness, he has given you the spiritual gift to build up the body. And we ought to be about learning how to do that. The church would be a whole lot healthier if we were all focused on this. How do you find your gift? Ask the people around you how they see uses your abilities and your passions and your serving. We did this in fact when we went to Bethany Baptist 2006 I think it was or 7 I remember meeting with the elders saying we want to be a part of this church we want to serve under the local authority of this church we will do whatever you tell us to do uh, I remember saying I am not uh, I'm not confident to tell you what my spiritual gifts are. I don't even uh, trust myself to discern what they are. I want you to tell us where we're gifted. You tell us where we serve. We'll start cleaning toilets. I remember saying that. Uh, and uh, I just, the context of discipleship, of biblical counseling, is the local church where we love God, we're growing in our love for God, love for people, we're making disciples, and we're busy using God has given us for his glory. Paul was about that. We ought to be about that as well. I have done. I apologize for this.
I am used to having my laptop right in front of me. What's the goal? We're going to talk a lot more about this tomorrow. But what is the goal of all this? Letter D. It's becoming more like Christ. I've got to figure out how to talk about Becoming more like Christ. Ephesians 4 says this, that until we all grow into the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. The idea of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the idea of the gospel is that God saves us and then grows us. Positional sanctification brings us into progressive sanctification that moves us to be growing more like Christ. Now, what does that have to do with biblical counseling? There's a key element here that strikes me as universally true. I don't want to fight about it, but I would like to talk more, and I'd like to buy you breakfast and we can talk. But there, I think there's a key element here. Uh, Ephesians four sixteen, I think it is. It says we are to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Verse twenty six or five or six, it says, "Put off lying and speak every man truth to his neighbor." And so, the element that you ought to see in the body of Christ all of the time as we grow in our love for God and each other and we make disciples, we ought to be speaking the truth to each other, just like that couple did that one night that, that, that God used to radically change my life. And so I would argue that speaking the truth in love and biblical counseling are one and the same. They are not different. And it is a call that every single individual in the body of Christ that claims the blood of Christ ought to be learning how to do this more effectively. Now, what is, what is it motivated by? Obviously, it's motivated by love. We speak the truth in love. Every believer is included in this command. This is Ephesians 4, the command, the call. Every one of us ought to be learning. Now, what excites me is, is I, I didn't know how to do this as a, as a 45-year-old individual, 20-some years in the church, I know how to do this. My best advice, uh, I remember when I first started doing this, I told my, my mentor that uh, one young man I was trying to encourage, he had been confessed adultery, was trying to encourage him, so broken, his, his marriage was really uh, in difficulty, and I said, I think his problem, telling this to my mentor, I think his problem is he, he needs to forgive himself. My mentor, a uh, different individual, wisely says, where does the scripture teach that you need to forgive yourself? Add again. Not there. That teaching is not in scripture. I needed to learn that this problem was not there for something else. So what's the big idea tonight? Let's talk real quickly about what, where are we going tonight? What's the big idea? Biblical counseling is discipleship is soul care. You're going to hear us talk about this tonight and tomorrow. Pastor Mike talks about soul care. We'll talk about discipleship. We'll talk about biblical counseling. It's the same thing. It is speaking the truth in love in the context of, of the local church. So here's a general thought of what I'm going to argue tonight. And we'll get into the details of this definition more tomorrow in, uh, after Pastor Daniel talks. Biblical counseling is ministry of the Holy Spirit through gifted believers. Remember, Everyone has a gift. You may not be specifically gifted to do this all the time with intense cases, but you are gifted in the body if you're a believer. And you are called to speak the truth in love. So we need to learn what the truth says so we can turn around and speak it. In the local church, am I emphasizing that enough? Ministry in the local church is where uh, I believe God has called us to serve first. A solid local church speaking the truth, truth in love with one another is going to be a solid evangelistic church. And it's going to make the gospel uh, attractive. Bob Smith, again, told me one time you can lead a horse to water. What's the rest of us say? Can't make him drink. And then he said this, caught me off guard, he said, but you can salt his oats. You can make him thirsty. And a church that is growing in their love for God, 
growing in their love for each other. And they're busy growing each other by making disciples. Is going to be a church that's going to make the gospel attractive. And when your neighbor watches you suffer well, I asked a friend of mine one time, just a few weeks ago, I said, how are you doing? And he said, a great biblical answer. He says, I am suffering well. Great answer. That makes the gospel attractive. <clears throat> what are we doing? We're fulfilling the Great Commission because we, have, we love the Great Commandment and we're speaking the truth of love. Well, how do we do this? Uh, what makes this effective? Uh, big idea tonight is that God's Word is not only sufficient to help us live life, it is superior to any other source of wisdom that we can imagine. We can turn to. Letter C. Another thing we're going to talk about here is, is the fall itself is where our problem started. We, start, we went to a different counselor. Now think about, this is, a, this is something that just has impressed me. As I, as I read my Bible over the years, I start to watch how God does ministry, how God communicates and speaks the truth in love to us. Do you realize that Jesus, think about this, Jesus is the God-man who created everything, the spoken word. He created something, everything out of nothing. So he has a powerful word, and when he is asked a question, when he's challenged in, in the gospel, guess what he does? Somebody said it. He speaks the word. He does. I counted at least 74 times Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And he says something like this. The words I speak, they are not what? They're not mine. The words I, I give you, in fact, he said this, I told you everything my father has told me, I have told you. He does not speak on his own. And that's something that we, I want to challenge us to learn about. And I want to challenge us to continue to grow in that uh, ability to, to think biblically and to think uh, I used to say, spin your Rolodex and think about what God's Word has to say. Well, I've been informed that that's outdated. <laughs> yeah. So uh, do a Google search of what you know the Scriptures say before you speak. And, and, and think, what does, if Christ were here, what would he say? Then you speak for him. Let us see the fall brought uh, a tremendous, well, a devastating result. Where did it come from? We listened to another counselor. Instead of going to God's word and listening to God's counsel, Adam and Eve turned to another counselor. All of our problems started there. And so a big idea tonight that I'm going to keep appealing to you is this. Troubles started when we went outside of God's word for answers to life. And troubles today are infinitely more, which means we ought never to start getting acceptance of Scripture to understand who we are and how to live life. So that makes us desperate. We are desperate for biblical counsel. Not just needy, but desperate. We'll talk more about that. So I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but the ultimate end of this ministry is love. First Timothy, Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, the Lord counsel is love. Love out of, out, of, out of the pure heart. So what you see here is a ministry in the church that's bookended with love. Speak the truth in love, and the goal of our counsel is love. 1 Timothy 1.5. That's the big idea. So we're, we go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and we think through, okay, we are called here to speak the truth Speaking the truth at verse 15, chapter 4, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We are to grow up into Christ's likeness from, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped. When each part, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, the, the beginning of the end is love. Love work in the church is a powerful evangelistic tool. Well, we need to go to chapter 4, verse 17. He, right then he says, 
This I say and testify that you must not walk as the Gentiles do. What's he saying? Verse 17 through 20, uh, if you look up here, I'm going to show you something. He's saying, I want you to put off this thinking, thinking, Gentile thinking. You need to not think this way. And so what I'm going to offer you tonight is an important principle for doing ministry, and that is rethinking, reinterpreting, and processing based on what does the scriptures really say? What do they teach me? What ought God, what would God have me to think? Renewed thinking. Put off the Gentile thinking. Why? Because, because in verse 17 he says they have a darkened understanding. They're, they're alienated from God. They're ignorant. They have hard hearts. They're driven. Chapter uh, 4, 17 through, through 19. What drives the Gentile mind? Driven by their senses and deceitful desires. And oh, by the way, you have, you can, I, the way I read this and understand this passage, you can have believers, this is written to believers, right? Believers and unbelievers side by side with the same lifestyle at that moment. Do you ever find yourself driven by desire? Instead of gospel-driven, truth-driven. You ever been that one? Don't leave me up here. Seriously. Yeah. We do. We struggle with this. And we think that our wisdom is better than God's, just like Adam and Eve did, you see. The wisdom of the this world is folly. And if we trust in ourselves, let us see, if we do trust in our own wisdom, Jeremiah 17 says that Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That's a strong warning. So the appeal tonight is this. Let's learn to think biblically. Let's learn that when we have ideas popping into our minds or when we hear something taught, read something, hear something on the radio, in a conversation that we have with somebody else, we ought to be asking, is it true? Is it biblical? Some of you heard me say this. I, I think it's, for me, it's a visual. I'm a visual learner. This helps me, has helped me for, for years. Our grandson was a year and a half. He was spending the night with us with his, the first time that he was at this age. And so, first time, grandpa, first grand, grandson, I get to put him to bed. Now, when our kids were little, bedtime was a big, it was an ordeal. It was a, it was a big deal. It lasted sometimes way longer than it should have. But we had tons of fun, so I'm looking forward to this. This little guy finally gets bedded down in his sleeping bag. Now watch this. He's laying on his stomach with his uh, elbows like this. He's propped up, and he's just staring into the sleeping bag. I get to read the story. This is Daniel. Do you realize how many times a year and a half, a year and a half year old has listened to this story? He knows it word for word. And I get to a, a place in the story, and I start to fill in uh, scripture, truth from scripture, and instantly watch this, he's looking like this, I'm right here, as soon as I deviate from the text he goes like this to his mom, he's right here he goes, is that true? And I, at first I'm offended because I'm grandpa, Papa knows better but you get the idea here, this kid is thinking the way you and I ought to be thinking we ought to be thinking, when we hear things, we ought to be thinking, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Because, why? If we trust in the human, in human wisdom, we are in, in trouble. And we can, we can think and act like a Gentile if we are not renewing our minds. So let's move on. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24 says, put off... The old man, 23, verse 23 says, renew the mind, and verse 24 says, put on. And so in this whole process of speaking the truth and love, we need to practice what we ought to be preaching, right? And understand that God's word is sufficient. We're going to renew our thinking. We've got to put off this trusting in Gentile thinking, stinking thinking, and turn to a sufficient, superior word of God. Now remember I said I didn't even know what sufficiency meant. Uh, and maybe some of you uh, 
this may be weird to some of you. So uh, uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines it this way. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture now contains all the words of God we need. You might underline that. All of the words of God that we need. And we're going to talk more about this as time goes on. For salvation. That's living in a right relationship with Him. And I would include salvation also brings us into right relationship with ourselves. Peace instead of guilt and shame. For trusting in Him perfectly and for obeying Him perfectly. So that is, I come into a right relationship with Him and I live in a right relationship with Him. And the Word of God is sufficient to help me know how to do that. Let us see, uh, Bruce Ware also has a great definition. This is just part of his definition about uh, systematic theology. If you're interested in systematic theology at all, I encourage you to find him on www.biblicaltraining.org. This is uh, an excerpt from his message called Theological Prologomena. Uh, just an excellent, excellent message. But the scriptures, what is, what is Bruce Ware and uh, Wayne Grudem saying, they're quoting Psalm 19, Psalm 119, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Scriptures like that, 2, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 14 through 17, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, what does it say? Scripture, all of Scripture is given. Uh, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 3, 17. They are explaining the sufficiency of Scripture and the passage that is helpful to understand this is 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. As, but as for you, he says to Timothy, Paul does, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, that's the truth of God's Word, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. That's the, the scriptures are sufficient to bring us into a right relationship with God. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, uh, Pastor Daniel mentioned this a couple of times. You won't find it in the next verse in many commentaries. In fact, most don't even comment on verse 17. Listen to what verse 17 that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the point of the passage is that when you come to speak the truth in love, the truth you have to speak from God's word is able to help anyone in any trouble respond in any way to please God. Now that is an incredible, incredible truth. I did not know that at 45 years old. And at now at 62, I... I believe it, but I still have not wrapped my mind around the power of what it teaches. But I'm telling you, I've seen God honor this over and over and over and over. Lives are changed because this is true. What does that mean? That means, where uh, says that the scriptures are our only final and ultimate authoritative source. That means that Everything that we believe must either flow out of our understanding of Scripture or be in line with the principles we find in there. If it doesn't, we must, we must what? Put it on. It's Gentile thinking. Don't, don't buy it. It may look good at first, but it's not. Now, from a counseling perspective, what you believe translates into who you are. So this is absolutely critical for us to understand and speak truth to other people. Because if you want to change your child's behavior, only God can do that. One, for one thing, only the Holy Spirit through the Word of God can do that. But they have to change their truth source, and they have to change um, who their authority is. It has to go from man-centered thinking to biblical thinking and speaking the truth in love brings people face to face with the power of the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and if He works, if God works, opens eyes and transforms hearts. 
That's what happened to me that night when my friends, I don't even remember what my friends said. I just remember he spoke and I saw myself, much like Isaiah 6 anticipated. So in the whole concept of renewing the mind, then, let's redefine the word counsel. Because most people, when we talk about biblical counsel or counseling, have a definition that's different than what our definition is. And I would say this, that whenever I teach, uh, rarely, I rarely have a class where I don't talk about reinterpreting something. In other words, we look at whatever it is in front of us, we get our Bibles out, and say, okay, this is what we see, now let's reinterpret it based on Scripture, and let's get an accurate biblical description of what we see. That's what we're doing right now with this whole idea of redefining counsel. So I'm going to start, we're going to talk a lot more about this tomorrow morning. But I just want to give you a brief introduction here. Uh, reinterpreting this word counsel starts uh, with just looking at a dictionary definition. So Webster's 1828 dictionary is one I like to use a lot because it helps me that was current when I was a kid. No, seriously, I like to look back at, at how meaning, word meanings change over time. This word, counsel, according to Webster, back then, now think, look at how broad this is. Advice, opinion, or instruction. Now this is what I like. Given upon request or otherwise. <laughs> now, that means that you moms and dads are counseling. Most of the time it's your opinion that's not, it's not asked for, right? But think about it, this is a very broad term. And I want, to, I want to define it that way because I want us as a body of Christ to recognize this is what God has called us to do. Every one of us here needs to learn how to do this. It's consultation or interchange of opinions. Anybody here didn't do that today? Well, by the way, if you look it up in Google, uh, you'll see the same definition. It's still there. Now, obviously, in our culture, we tend to think of counseling as someone with a, a license and you make appointments. You know, we tend to get narrow. That's why I want to redefine this. Because when we talk about biblical counsel, we want to talk about a broad definition. And now I want to talk about where it started. Where did counsel start? Answer? In the garden. When God began to speak is when counsel began. So biblical counseling is something that's been going on for a very long time. He was the first one to speak. Now here's the argument that I want to lay out to you. I want you to think about this. Here is a perfect man, a perfect couple in a perfect world. Looking at, now by the way, as I understand it, Adam was an extremely intelligent individual. The Bible says he looked at the animals and he evidently had a significant understanding and a significant vocabulary because he looked at the animal and he assessed the characters of the animal and he picked the word that fit the character of the animal. I used to think that, well, name anything and it will become whatever that name means, it will become that. That's not what the text says. Here's the point. A perfect man in a perfect world, a man with great wisdom and a great understanding, did not know how to live in right relationship with God himself in this world. Apart from, what? Biblical saying. Counsel. From God. He needed God's word. So, so, number six, Roman number six, he's created dependent. When I heard this talk, uh, uh, Dr. Craig uh, Rao taught this, I, I'm guessing back in 2000 when I first heard, heard this talk, and it, it, really, it really solidified my belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. This whole idea that Adam's in a garden and he can't figure out his world, he did not know things unless God told him. 
this idea that man needed counsel before the fall to me is profoundly important. Man's created dependent, not our counsel. Adam had a need to listen to and walk with God, and he couldn't figure out how to do it without God's revealing truth. Dependent, not autonomous. Our culture, the American culture, It's really interesting to watch to contrast our culture to other cultures in the world. Uh, Pastor Ben and I were in Africa, West Africa, last summer, and it was extremely difficult to explain God's word to them and to help them apply it. Because why? Because their culture was so powerful. The culture overruled God's word, and you would challenge a pastor to teach the truth and to. Uh, this one pastor we talked to had uh, one of the leaders was a polygamist and he was asking me what to do. What do I do? Answer. One, one man, one woman, you've got to deal with it. He can't live that way and he, you've got to put him out of leadership. You should have seen the terror in his face. How can I do this? They will say that I'm beating people with me. I his, his head had significant fear. Why was that? Because the culture overruled the scriptures and people acquiesced to the need of the culture, the demand of the culture. Not, not in our country. We're autonomous. Americans live by themselves. We have garage doors. We drive home, hit the, hit the button, drive in, never see anybody. We live apart from our community office, let alone from the church. We are dependent on our autonomous. So, here's Adam in a perfect world. Did not know who he was apart from God's word. He listened to what God's word had to say and began to understand identity. And I would argue that Adam could not figure out who he was apart from God's revealing scripture. We'll talk more about that in a minute. He also didn't know his purpose. Adam had to figure, had to understand who he was and why he was here. And so do you and I. What I have, I've been watching in Scripture now as I read the last uh, many, many months, I've been looking for this whole concept of identity, how important is identity to Paul, how important is purpose to Paul, it's all over the pages of Scripture. And as I talk to people and, and as we discuss what uh, life's problems and how to respond to them from, from a biblical perspective, guess what? Guess what shows up? Most of the time, if not all of the time, we're talking about identity. Who are you? Because if you don't understand who you are, uh, it's going to be. You know, in fact, you will not. You will not fulfill your purpose. These two are almost hand in glove, and uh, tremendous, tremendous problems come out of this this issue, and great, great results come out of this as well. Extremely important. Third thing, Adam sees in the garden. He learns from God's word, and so do we. God's word reveals and meets our needs. And I believe Paul continues throughout the, the scriptures to also talk about this. Paul, I believe, was able to suffer well because he knew who he was, he knew why he was here, and he knew what he needed. And I think a good example of that, 2 Corinthians 4. He compares uh, how many times he was beaten. Uh, I just read it, I can't remember. Lots. The idea that, that what that man went through is just unthinkable. Now, look at, look at what he did. He compares all of his suffering. By the way, he lists it all over and over throughout Second Corinthians. And then he compares it as a weight. In the Old Testament, the idea for glory is weight. And he says, this is a momentary light affliction. Now, if you weigh this in the balance, compared to the glory of God, guess what you get? Because the glory of God is so much greater than his horrible suffering. How can he do that? He knew who he was, and he knew what his purpose was. And I would argue that this is a huge piece of speaking the truth of love, understanding who we are, as God identifies us, blood-washed, blood children of the King, who have an eternal home that is not affected 
by what you do and who you are today. That's huge, you see. And knowing why you're here, we're going to talk about that uh, much, much more tomorrow. God, or, uh, God had to tell Adam these things. God still has to tell us. If you think he needed to learn something from God about purpose, identity, and peace, we need, we are desperate, far more desperate than he is. Number seven, let's just look at this real quick. Identity, we have a whole class on, on biblical anthropology, so uh, this will take about an hour and a half to go through this, but I want to introduce you to it because it's significant in terms of why and how we count. We're created in the image of God, physical, physical beings. What man, uh, God created man out of the dust of the earth, that's physical, and he breathed into him and man became a living soul. You see, all the way through scripture, this theme of physical and spiritual, physical and spiritual. And so there's two realms that we live in, the physical and spiritual realm, and then we relate in four dimensions within that existence. First, internally, we're, we're different than animals. We process, we think about ourselves, we have guilt, there's a conscience. We wonder things like, why am I here? Animals don't do that. We're not animals, we're different. We relate to ourselves internally. We also relate to God vertically. We have a conscience that tells us how we're doing with Him. We look at the, at the physical world and we see that we understand that he exists. Romans says, everyone knows that. We're without excuse. The third thing, we also relate horizontally to other people. Adam in the garden says, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. You need to relate horizontally to live in community. And the fourth thing is we relate to the physical world, the external world. This is, this is who you are. This is part of your identity. I process things. I'm rational, mostly. I reflect. I'm a reflector of the nature of God, the image of God. I, I relate vertically to Him. I relate horizontally to people. And I live in the physical world. By the way, the first place you touch the physical world is where? Your body. And this is probably the worst physical existence that you will ever have. Look at me. <laughs> Your physical body is not very kind to you after a while, and you start to fall apart. The way you relate to your physical body is significantly important, and the sufficiency of Scripture says this. In the physical, spiritual world, the Word of God gives you everything you need to live in a right relationship with yourself, with God, with people, and with your world. He tells you how to respond to life regardless of how hard it is. And he equips you for every good work through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, the spoken Word of God. Identity is critical. You cannot find it to understand the parts of Scripture. And I would argue that anybody that does uh, ends up in big trouble. How, do I, how can I say that? Psalm 1, uh, Jeremiah 17, Cursed is man who trusts in man. The wisdom of God is a man is foolishness with God, etc. We also learn purpose. Adam and Eve learned purpose in the garden. And I would argue that this is a very significant element of discipleship to know why you are alive. And anytime you live apart from your purpose, if you live, try and live your life apart from God's purpose and see how it works. We find people who are broken down and miserable because they are not pursuing their life purpose. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Adam also learned from God, from God's word, what he needed. This got them into a lot of trouble because they needed to obey God's word and they did. They needed to live in fellowship with God and they broke it through rebellion. He needed to live in the garden. God says, live here, eat here, don't eat this, but eat all of this. 
And they said, no, we need more. We need more than what you've given us. And not trusting God to provide you got us into a healing trouble. And I, again, the heart is, we learn that from God's word, and we live outside of God's identity, purpose, and need, we are in significant trouble. And where did it come from? Listening to another God. Trouble started when we began to listen to another counselor. I'm going to go quickly through this, but I want to offer a couple suggestions for you. This, this book here covers, uh, summarizes much of what this conference is going to talk about. This is called Don't Call It a Comeback. It's a funny name for a good book. The subtitle is An Old Faith for a New Day. It's written by, I think, 30 different authors. It's uh, edited by Kevin DeYoung. There's a chapter in there about the sufficiency of, sufficiency of Scripture that's very helpful. And he talks in there, and Kevin DeYoung, in this book, we got this one out, both these books are in the hallway. This one is Taking God at His Word. This book and that one chapter in sufficiency are excellent explanations of what this means believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. They both talk about it. Eve questioned the sufficiency of God's Word, and it landed us in the mess we're in. She also questioned the, the four attributes of God's Word. The sufficiency of God's Word, the clarity of God's Word. Remember, did, did God really say there's a hint of this clear? And she got it wrong. Let her be also questioned the authority of God's word. And Jesus, an example of that, said, all authority is given to me. Go make disciples. So if we choose not to make disciples, we are rebelling against God's authority. I'm not. That's sobering. And she also questioned the necessity of God's word. Those are the four attributes of God that both of these authors talk about and unpack it. And Young says this about sufficiency. It's one of the attributes of Scripture that evangelicals forget first, and I, I agree with that. Um, I'm just going to appeal to you to develop this habit. If you think of ideas, listen to messages, read, script, read books, and so forth, ask the question, is it true? Because the Bible is not only sufficient, and it is necessary, and all of it is presented in a manner that's clear. And you can understand it, you don't need someone else to explain it to you. But here's the result of the fall. Romans 9, there's a huge result from listening to another counselor. Four dimensions are radically changed, and we moved from internal uh, Clear conscience to shame and guilt. Vertically, we're separated from God. Horizontally, can you imagine the fight they had that night? I cannot imagine how, what the conflict was that came from that event in the garden. Blame, Adam ran and covered up, right? Blame shifted. He says, to God, he says, the woman you gave me, he blamed he, God and he blamed his wife. You imagine the fight they had that night. And you also had one question. Just back up here. Externally, look at the devastation externally. Physically, God provided everything they needed in the garden. Perfect plans, nothing interrupted, perfect nourishment. Can you imagine what they saw when they saw fruit hanging from the trees in the garden? Body doesn't this body, as I understand it, was designed to never decay. Devastation is huge. So all that to say this. We, as rational believers, ought to be very quick to run to God's word and very quick to question our thoughts in comparison to God's word. So we don't want to be in trouble. 
because the fall brought infinite need. We've gone from, from I should say, we've gone from needy to desperate. Desperate for rescue and preservation and so forth. And all of our physical world is corrupt. So, how about that? Uh, Let me just let me summarize this this way. We'll run out of time. My my heart's desire is that God's people would grow and be passionate about loving this God who has done so much to demonstrate His love. We were just in Israel. And the theme that kept running through my mind was God became a man. And literally, we, we sat on the steps that Jesus Christ himself walked on and we listened to Pastor Daniel read the very words that God spoke. Same with the, the, the uh, Mount of Beatitudes. Daniel read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spoke those words. The idea that God became man and died for me is a stunning truth. Growing in love for God automatically grows into love for people. I, don't know, I hope that you're growing in your love for people. I get so much joy. I, I love, I love loving people. I was not like that. And it is because of the love of God in me that I've been changed. Living in relationship with people, speaking the truth in love is why you are here. It is your purpose. Your identity is I'm blood, blood washed by the King of Kings. He died for me so that I would no longer live for myself, but unto him who died and rose for me so I could speak the truth with joy and excitement and with a passionate belief that I know a God who has the answer your need. Let me take you to him. Tomorrow we're going to talk more about how to do that. We need, we need people in the church who will love people to point them to the truth of God's word. Because you know why? Because the church is full of broken people. We are just beggars helping other people find the bread. One of the things that I do uh, every, every Sunday I, I, some, some of you have noticed this. I uh, apologize if it bothers you, but I stand in the theater and look. I try to look at every single person in that theater. And here's what's going through my mind. Every person I look at is hurting. I know it because we are in a broken world. How can I see to it that they get the, the compassionate help that they need? My desire is that we become a, a church that, that is passionate about sharing the sufficient love of Christ through his word so that we grow up to become more like Christ. Mike, Pastor Mike is going to come and talk about what makes this counseling biblical. He's going to talk about soul care and, and biblical counseling and what makes it biblical. And, and I I. I hope that as you listen to him, you start getting fired up about the word that God has spoken. Because you cannot speak the truth. You can't speak the truth you don't know. And you won't. And Paul says, uh, he summarizes Romans 13 as it is. Love people. Because all of the commands of scripture says love people. And I believe the assumption there is you can't love people until you love God. You won't love God until you love and know His Word. And so, my appeal to you is understand God's Word is sufficient. You can know it. You can live it and show other people the promises of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Because you first loved us, and we know that we do not deserve what you have done. But we
humbly ask you to do this to further your kingdom. Help us love you more, love each other more effectively, more genuinely, as we learn to be disciples and follow in your footsteps, knowing that you have given us gifts to love your body so that as an evangelical community, you make of truth and love in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to take a